The villagers of Salem now had a confession of witchcraft. It confirmed their greatest fears and made witchcraft very real. They also knew that more witches were hiding among their small righteous community, and the hunt to find the witches that plagued the village of Salem had now begun. It's time to turn down the lights, turn up the volume, and join me, Autumn Rivas, in a darkly lit place for the continuation of the story of the Salem Witch Trials. The three accused women were jailed and would soon be joined by a growing number of their neighbors. Because of the dangerous level of threat the witches represented, they were kept in a dungeon in tiny cells, some with only enough room to stand, and they were chained to the wall to keep their vengeful spirits from escaping. Also, to add insult to injury, the condemned were also charged for their stay for straw to sleep on if you were lucky enough to get a cell large enough to sit or lay down. For food and water, even their own execution would come with a fee. These deplorable conditions and lack of sanitation would lead to the deaths of five people. Of those, Sarah Osborne, one of the first three women accused, would perish in jail before ever going to trial. And another being the infant daughter born to Sarah Good before her execution. Four more women would be accused within the month. The next was Martha Corey. Her accusation would bring about a new layer of fear. Martha Corey was a member of the church She had a far higher status in the community than the other three prior accused. If Martha Corey could be a witch, anyone could be. Anne Putnam and Mercy Lewis claimed to be tortured and tormented by Martha Corey's specter, and the other girls soon joined in on these claims. A specter being the devil in the form of the witch, It was believed as part of the witch's contract with Satan that the devil could incarnate in the image of the witch and bring suffering to the afflicted. Of course, the specter could only be seen by those afflicted, and while this may sound absolutely ridiculous to our modern minds, this type of spectral evidence was allowed in the Salem witch trials. It was, after all, the only evidence they had because wicked witches aren't real. Martha Corey was brought before the judge for examination at Salem Meeting House. Her questioning was heated. She was harassed and berated accused of lying, and all the while amongst a backdrop 
of the afflicted girls, screaming in increasing hysterics. Every time Martha spoke or tried to speak or gesture or blink, the girls would begin shrieking, claiming that Martha's specter was pinching and biting them. It was more like a circus than a pretrial examination. By the end of March, Martha Corey, Rebecca Nurse, Rachel Clinton, and Dorothy Good, Sarah Good's four-year-old daughter, would all find themselves accused of witchcraft and the newest residents of the Salem Witch Dungeon. Sadly, Dorothy Good would spend eight months imprisoned with no daylight and only enough food and water to survive. It's said that she went mad and never recovered from the trauma she endured as a small child in that horrible dungeon. The following month, 21 more people would be accused, and several of them men. In fact, one of the men accused was a former reverend of none other than the Salem Village Church, but more on him later. And in the month of May, another 34 would be added to the list. While we can never know for certain why these girls chose the people they did to accuse as witches, one most popular theory is that Thomas Putnam and Reverend Paris were behind the scenes, pulling the strings. It seems too coincidental that many of those accused had prior disputes with the Putnam family or opposed the contract with Paris, or both. The mass hysteria was now in full swing, and no one seemed to be off-limits from accusation. Once a person was convicted and placed in custody for witchcraft, their property and lands would be confiscated by the sheriff, George Corwin. It would then be split between himself, his deputies, and others in the village. Many believe that one of the reasons the people of Salem might accuse their neighbors of witchcraft was to acquire their land. The accusations were getting vicious, and the sheriff was getting rich. Coincidentally, Sheriff Corwin's own uncle was one of the four magistrates who sat on the bench as a judge during the Salem witch trials. The first trial would be held on June 2nd. Bridget Bishop would be the first of the accused to go to trial. Reportedly, she was chosen because the prosecution thought it would be an easy conviction. The prosecution would prove to be correct. Bridget had a troubled reputation with a history of domestic disturbances and physical violence between her and her now deceased second husband. She had also been previously accused of witchcraft in Boston by her stepchildren 12 years prior for bewitching their father and causing his death. She had been found not guilty in Boston due to lack of evidence, and it is believed that the accusation was a play for their father's inheritance, which had basically all been left to Bridget. The trial would prove to bring out the worst in the community. 
10 witnesses testified in gory detail how Bridget Spector had harassed and tortured them, how she had cursed them in some way or another, using black magic against them. She would be convicted and sentenced to hang at the gallows just days later. On June 10th of 1692, Bridget Bishop would be the first victim of the Salem witch hysteria and be hanged at Gallows Hill. Five days after her execution, Cotton Mather, the well-respected Puritan minister from Boston, wrote to the court imploring them not to accept this so-called spectral evidence as evidence in these trials, that this imaginary testimony should not be the only true evidence necessary to sentence a person to death. And keep in mind, the hangings were not what you see in the movies as an instantaneous death by the snap of the neck. No, they were tied to the hanging tree by their neck and a chair would be pushed out from under. So they would slowly strangle to death, struggling for relief, barely able to push the tips of their toes into the ground below. As the witch trials continued, it became apparent that the only plea bargain one accused could get from the court was to confess and name other witches. Tichiba had been the first, and while she remained imprisoned, she was not tried, and more importantly, not sent to the gallows. While those who contested the accusations and diligently declared innocence were hanged. Several notable citizens would be killed before this circus show would come to an end, one of whom was Rebecca Nurse. She was accused early on, back in March. Rebecca was 71 years old. She wasn't an outcast. She wasn't unliked. She was described as pious, and in fact, several members of Salem community signed a petition for her release, proclaiming she could not possibly be a witch. She could not possibly have signed the devil's book. She was a member of the church, a role model and pillar of the community. She had originally been found not guilty by the court, but upon the reaction of the afflicted girls in the crowd, who would shriek and roll on the floor like maimed animals when she rose her hand or tried to speak, the judges reconsidered their verdict and found her guilty. She would be among four others who would hang in the month of July. It was a shock to the system for the Puritan community that one of their closest and most idyllic citizens could be hanged as a witch. Reverend George Burroughs had been the minister in Salem Village from 1680 to 1683, about 10 years prior to Reverend Paris being appointed minister. Burroughs was not an ordained Puritan minister, so he could not hold communion or baptize children, but he was a Harvard-educated Puritan minister. 
When Burroughs had accepted the role in Salem, he inherited the problems of his predecessor, who left after the villagers decided to stop paying his salary. There were constant feuds among families, community arguments and disagreements. It was a settlement in disarray and unrest. When Burroughs' wife, Hannah, passed away in 1681, shortly after giving birth to their fourth child, George Burroughs, under monetary distress, as a widow with four small children, borrowed money for the burial and funeral services of his first wife. Unfortunately for George Burroughs, he borrowed these funds from the Putnam family. And shortly after, the villagers decided they were no longer happy with Burroughs' services as their minister, and as they had a habit of doing, they stopped paying his salary. The Putnam family took Burroughs to court for failure to repay on his loan, and Burroughs, in his defense, testified that he could not repay the loan until the villagers paid his salary. Burroughs won the court case, and the Putnams were humiliated. Burroughs then left Salem and moved north to Maine, where he eventually secured a minister position on the edge of the frontier in Wells. On April 30th, Ann Putnam suffered from a hysterical fit in which she claimed the specter of George Burroughs had appeared and was torturing her. She said he was the leader of the witches and the right hand of Satan himself. Mercy Lewis quickly joined in as several other of the afflicted girls. Thomas Putnam formally accused Reverend George Burroughs of witchcraft and an arrest warrant was issued. The authorities were very careful to not let word get out about Burroughs' arrest so that he couldn't escape further into the wilderness given his current location in Wells. Cloaked in the dark of night, the arresting officers crept towards the home of Burroughs. They silently approached the front steps and swiftly barged in the door Without providing any explanation or reason, they grabbed Burroughs from the dinner table where he had been eating with his family. I can only imagine that his wife and children would be screaming, crying, demanding what to know what was going on and where were they taking him? Why were they there? But in a flash, they were just gone. George Burroughs was brought back to Salem and chained into a cell in the witch dungeon to await trial. In all, 30 people would testify against Reverend George Burroughs, including Thomas Putnam, whose testimony would reveal to be oddly similar to the testimony provided by the six afflicted girls who first made the accusation of witchcraft against Burroughs. The phrasing and some exact wording leads to suspicion that the girls may have been coached by Putnam. George Burroughs would be sent to the gallows on August 19th with four others who had resolved to adhere to their innocence instead of confess and name others as witches to save their lives. 
A large crowd was gathered to witness the executions, and among the crowd was the famous and highly respected Puritan minister, Cotton Mather. When the spotlight was on George Burroughs, he delivered a final and eloquent monologue proclaiming his innocence, and he followed it up with a perfect recitation of the Lord's Prayer, something that witches were known to be unable to do. The crowd immediately started to question if they had condemned an innocent man. They began shouting to cut the noose and to release this man. He couldn't be a witch. It was then that Cotton Mather, on horseback, addressed the mob that was beginning to form. Mather reassured the crowd that the evidence against Burroughs was compelling and conclusive, that he was convicted by the court and found guilty based on evidence against him, and that the devil could take many forms, even appearing as an angel of the light. Mather's statements denouncing Burroughs' character was more than enough to justify his death sentence to the crowd. Giles Corey, the husband of Martha Corey, who had been arrested back in March, found himself accused by the afflicted girls of also being a witch. Giles had supported the witch trials in the beginning, but was now not finding it to be so entertaining. He was a stubborn old man and had a reputation of not being well-liked. He was also a very successful farmer and had one of the largest plots of land in Salem Village. And he was catching on that once convicted, all he had worked for, the inheritance that was meant for his children, it would all be lost. Giles refused to cooperate with the court proceedings. When prompted to enter a plea, he remained mute, not saying a thing. Sheriff Corwin grew impatient and sought out other means to force Giles to offer a plea, announce his guilt or innocence to the charges of witchcraft. There was an old English law that allowed for torture to coax a plea out of the accused. This torture involved stripping the person naked, lying them out on the ground, placing a large board over their body, and covering it with heavy stones. This would be the fate of Giles Corey. On September 17th, just eight days after his wife Martha would be found guilty and sentenced to death, Giles Corey's torture would begin. Giles would endure two full days of this torture, along with Sheriff Corwin's persistent harassment to enter a plea. But Giles would only reply, More weight! His suffering would end on September 19th, and he would have successfully protected his assets. And it is also said that before Giles Corey took his last breath, he cursed Sheriff Corwin and Salem. Sheriff Corwin would be dead just four years later 
after suffering a heart attack. He was only 30 years old. It's also a strange coincidence that every person to have held the title of sheriff in Salem either died suddenly or suffered from serious heart conditions or other medical oddities, forcing them to retire. Today, that position no longer exists. There is also a legend that the ghostly apparition of Giles Corey appears in Salem as a foreboding omen of disaster and tragedy, the most devastating of which occurred in June of 1914. His ghost was reported to be seen the night before the Great Fire of Salem. The fire apparently started on Gallows Hill and spread, burning over a thousand buildings and most of Salem to the ground. The last executions of witches in Salem would occur on September 22nd, 1692. Martha Corey and seven others would be executed by hanging on Gallows Hill. The witch trials were coming to an end. The pressing to death of Giles Corey did not sit well with the community, and eventually the courts started to have trials even for those who had confessed and named other witches. After that, the accusations that had been so rampant began to slow down. In October, the flagrant accusations went too far. The wife of the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was accused. Governor Phipps immediately dissolved the Salem Witch Court and outlawed the use of spectral evidence in future trials. A new superior court was established to hear the cases of those still imprisoned, but most of those awaiting trial were released due to lack of any actual evidence. The governor eventually pardoned the rest, including those who had previously admitted guilt. Tichaba, the slave of Reverend Paris, who was the first to be accused and the first to confess, was released to the custody of a new master after Paris refused to pay for her jail fees. To me, it seems like some kind of tragic irony that the woman who really sparked the wildfire of the Salem witch hunt with her fantastical courtroom stories quietly makes an exit from the story. There are no further records of Tichaba after her release from jail in April of 1693. If you ever have a chance to visit the Salem of today, I highly recommend it. I lived in Southern Maine for about five years and made the pilgrimage to Salem many times. In fact, if you can make the trip in October, you will find it to be very busy and very festive. They have Halloween parades, masquerade balls, psychic fairs, and all types of events. Uh, it's really a lot of fun. Get there early. Parking can be extremely frustrating. There are also several museums on the witch trials and reenactments of the court trials. While the original witch dungeon no longer exists, 
There is a museum with a recreation of what the conditions of the dungeon would have been like for those imprisoned there. There is also a pirate museum, which granted might be a little cheesy, but it's also still a lot of fun. And of course, there are many, many tours of the historical sites and haunted tours are also offered. It's funny that a town that was once so hysterical of ridding itself of witches has now become almost a haven for the pagan art. I'm Autumn Rebus, and I thank you for joining me in a darkly lit place. I invite you to please take a moment to check out the website, adarklylitplace.com, for more information along with the photo gallery, and I look forward to meeting you back here in two weeks. Thank you for listening. <laughs>